I'm Asan, and this is Boardroom Battles, a history show, part two. Um, as with part one, I'm delighted to be joined by the men in the know, Stefan and Colin. Welcome, both of you. Welcome, Stefan, first. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing? Very well, very well. It's not the same without you on the podcast in the summer, Stefan. I've got to be honest with you. A lot of our listeners are going, where's Stefan? So when the season starts, you'll have to make time for us, Mr. What, CEO. What would I have found to moan about the Spurs friendly? <laughs> I mean, it was 90 minutes of domination. Even I couldn't have complained. Actually, no, I could have found something, I'm sure. Uh, even I could. I, I can always find something to complain about, so I'm sure that you can. And Colin, how are you? I'm fine. I could certainly find things to complain about, but it was a wonderful performance. But we'll leave that to another day. Mm. Well, look, what we're doing in this podcast is we are picking up where we left off in the previous one. So where we left off in the previous one, Stefan, I believe that you just climbed into a helicopter with Thaksin to sell the club to him. So pick up the thread there if you could. Yeah, that was about a couple of weeks before the uh, before we announced it. Um, and then from memory, we got a bit of a late shock, actually, because his, uh, his assets got frozen, right? So we, I think after the helicopter ride, we were feeling quite, well, I wouldn't say good, but we were feeling relatively confident the deal was going to happen. Uh, we, and then in the next few days, then there was a development in Thailand, and that sort of set us back a little bit. We also went to see AXA, and I think he was actually only AXA, and AXA were the lender, the the uh, stadium lender, and uh, they were they were all for it. I think largely because they'd been warmed up uh, to the fact that we were probably in severe financial trouble if we didn't do the deal. So that was quite persuasive. Um, and we got ourselves comfortable ultimately because the money had been transferred, as I mentioned last last time, into uh, Seymour Pierce's bank account, and uh, they were sat on both the money to do the deal, but also cash to buy some players so when you see the document that we drafted um so once we got a deal in principle we drafted that document the the offer document uh it's largely drafted by tax inside uh, but it's essentially a document that puts together the terms of the offer and, and is sent to the shareholders of city setting out both uh taxing's position uh he managed to get a little um comment in there about how it was all very unfair what was going on in thailand and our position in terms of justifying why we felt the offer was fair and reasonable and why we felt this was the right move. So it outlined in a fairly high level, but the, the kind of considerations that we had, largely the performance on the field, um, the lack of investment that was available to the club without the transaction, and the fact that we'd had these assurances uh, from taxing. Um, in terms of what else was going on in the background, clearly you had to go through uh, the fit and proper test as it was at the time, which actually wasn't much of a fit and proper test, if I'm being honest. Um, what was it? I Just do, do you remember sort of what type of parameters they had? And is it different from the current fit and proper person test in the sense that do you think that Thaksin would have been able to buy the club today with the ease that he bought it with 10 years ago? No, I, I and um, and Colin might know better than me. I'm not close to what the test is at the moment, but I do know that shortly after the deal, they, they did tighten up the rules. I th the bottom line is the test at that time, from memory, was have you formally been convicted of of a crime in a, in in a, another territory or in the UK? Just a fraud, I think, wasn't it? Financial crime. 
was it a financial? I can't remember right. So, if I remember right, it actually yeah. required uh, it required a conviction. Now, obviously, that's that's quite a far cry. Well, a lot of conviction is a conviction, but but he wasn't in that position, um, and therefore, you know, is effectively yeah, it's fine. Uh, and obviously, I mentioned last time the checks that we'd done on our side, and whilst everybody wasn't you know overwhelmed by it, it was it, we got the we ticked the boxes we needed to tick. Uh, and made the decision based in, on the context of the situation. So, uh, you know, we then went through uh, effectively a late night discussion. The price didn't actually move that much. Uh, the price, I don't think, was uh, that much of a big deal at the end um, because um, Taxin had agreed effectively to do a a deal with um, Wardle and Macon in relation to their debt. Uh, and then the, the price that he offered for the actual shares was 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 not not a huge amount, mm. which made the deal you know this eighty million pound deal, eighty one point six million pound deal. But really, only twenty one million of it was going to the shareholders. The rest of it was the sixty million pound debt that was sat there. So, in terms of how you calculate the deal size, it was around sixty million debt that was owed to people like AXA and Banco de Spirito, uh, which is a I think it's a Portuguese bank. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, it wasn't a deal where there was high-level negotiation, toing and froing all the way to the death. It was very much more on the procedural side and on the side in terms of having comfort that he had the money in place um, as much as anything to buy the players afterwards. I mean, that, that became a key, an absolutely key consideration that we were going to basically have funds to strengthen the squad straight that away was, after that the That's going to be my next question. Um what sort of assurances did they give you about player purchases? And was there actually an amount of money that they had to show as being available as part of that sale? From my memory, there was an amount of money paid into Seymour Pierce's bank account, yeah. which gave us the, the comfort that they were, they were ready to spend. And we refer to that within the document. So within the offer document, um, it's referred to. Um, so it was a bit more than a kind of soft, we intend to, uh, you know, invest in the squad. They'd actually got the cash in a bank account in this country. And and that was key. I, I think if that hadn't have happened, that might have been the final straw that actually would have made us go, mm, not so sure about this one. Mm. Okay. Um, now, so Daxon gets appointed. We don't have a manager. The next thing, we need to get a manager. Um Colin, tell me about Sven's appointment. Well, um, I was just looking at this the other day and trying to um, fix it in my memory. And because uh, one of the things that happened, one of the big things that happened is, is we were still going as a supporters trust. And as Stefan said, it wasn't clear that the takeover was going to go through uh, because of all the issues around it. So we were we were keeping together. Um, we'd expanded the group fairly significantly because uh, there was a lot of work to do, basically, and just just four of us. And but we had our ear close to the ground. The story that that I was told was that, um, and I think this this kind of sets the scene for what came later. Shinawatra wanted a big name manager, um, and, and Sven obviously fit that profile. He'd been the England manager, successful club manager, had this high profile. Um, I believe that I'm not 100% sure of this, but the story that came back to me, the club was also talking to managers 
maybe not uh, not Sven. So Shinawatra was talking to Sven. He wanted Sven, and I was, um, even Sven's agent was denying that these conversations were taking place uh, at all. Still, so whether they were talking to Sven directly and cutting the agent out, City, I believe, were also talking to a managers. And the two names that I heard mentioned were uh, one day Ramos, who I think uh, was was Spurs manager for a while, wasn't he? And Co Adrianse. And this this was all in the press, so it was all out in the press that City were talking to three managers. So I'm not sure that everyone was talking to the same three people, if you see what I mean. Oh. So I think Shinomach was talking to Sven, and City maybe were talking to the other two. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously if the takeover was not going to go through, we still need a manager. Yeah. So I quite understand why City would have been doing that. But, um, and this, this kind of led to a bit of an infamous incident, really, because um, uh, Heidi Pickup, who used to edit the... Manchester City info via the Alps. Uh, I'd been doing the media duties for the Supporters Trust, and as we expanded, I just want to stop you right there. Are you gonna? Are we gonna talk here about the seventy percent of the City fans don't want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. That's what I wanted to talk about next. Go for it. Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. So, um, how do you take over the media duties from me? And she was perfectly competent at it. And I think I was, and she did. She knew a lot of people through through her contacts branch and and the, the stuff she did. Um, on on McVitie and stuff like that. And she did a, a straw poll of about, I don't know, 200 and odd people in terms of these are the three names, Sven, uh, Ramos and Adriance. Who, who do you, which one do you prefer as manager? And it came out about uh, 36% um, for Adriance. I can't remember which one, about 36% for Adriance, 33% for Ramos or Adriance, which other, and about 31 for Sven. Because Sven, if you remember, Sven was a bit tainted by his England yes. um, tenure. So it was close. It was, you know, 36, 33, 31, something like that. And I, I was, I think I was, I was with her and she was speaking to Daniel Taylor of The Guardian on the phone. And she talked this through. Oh, you know, I've done a straw poll of 200 City fans, which is a reasonable um, sample. And, and this was the result. And the story was in The Guardian next day. 70% of City fans don't want Sven, um, which obviously caused a lot of problems. Um, I was a bit surprised at uh, Daniel Taylor. And thinking back on it, I, I just wonder if the club had kind of put him up to causing some mischief. I don't know. But th- this caused a kind of great problem. And obviously the, the takeover was seen as a good thing by most City fans. Uh, and we were fighting a bit of a losing battle anyway. And this killed us stone dead, really. But 70% of City fans don't want Sven. But it was never it was never really 70% of City fans don't want Sven. It was out of the 200 City fans surveyed, 70% wanted someone other than Sven. It's not yeah. that they didn't want Sven. But there was, I was looking back at some of the stuff and um, th- th- there was a lot of... Um, ill-feeling towards Sven, and it was felt it wasn't a good idea. So it kind of caught the mood at the time, but the way it was put over um, wasn't very good. That's weird, that, because I remember I remember that time really well, and I, you're right, there was resistance to Sven, which even at the time, coming out of the, the Stuart Pearce era, it just felt so strange to be so down on, on somebody who's who had the record that Sven had. I mean, his England record aside, he was even, in fact, even taking into account his England record, he was a manager who was for where we, we were a club who had just staved off relegation. So yeah, yeah. we had no right to appoint somebody with the pedigree of, of Ericsson. So even at the time, the the resistance felt 
strange in a way. Sorry, Colin, I cut you off again. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it was his England. You know, he hadn't been popular as England manager towards the end of his time, even though he'd done, he started off doing a really good job. Um, and um, anyway, obviously, uh, Chinawatra got his um, got his wish, uh, and Sven uh, signed a contract. And I think the takeover was completed on July the sixth, and Sven was appointed later that formally appointed later that day. Though I think he'd signed contracts beforehand. But um, just kind of going back a bit on the, in terms of the takeover, of course, once John Wardler had accepted with his thirty percent of shares, Mark Bowler had another nearly nineteen percent. Um, Sky were quite happy to sell their 10%. So he got his majority quite quickly, I think. Well, we uh, had irrevocables, didn't we? So the way yeah, it works yeah. in a but, transaction but, like this is you get you you announce... You get your big ones in and... But yeah, you you announce the deal and you, you, you say that you've also got irrevocable acceptances to the offer from X, Y, and Z. And that's normal in any kind of public takeover. So effectively, the deal the deal... Is done to the extent that it can be, and then we, the, what generally happens is you have a, an acceptance condition. If you can get to ninety percent, then you can get to one hundred percent because there's there's Companies Act, which allows you to flush out any minorities. Yeah, so that's what yeah. we ended up doing. Yeah, yeah. So so once he got to seventy five percent, that was that was obviously the tipping point. But the funny thing, one of the funny stories around this, if we go back to the part one and boardroom battles and all the grudges, uh, apparently Franny Lee. A condition of the sale of his 7% was that Dennis Stewart was stood down from the board because, of course, Stewart was um, Wardle Makin's man. So I think uh, Friendly had this grudge against um, Stewart and Wardle and Makin. So it was the condition of sale that um, Dennis Stewart was stood down from the board, which he did uh, once the sale went through, as did um, Mark Bowler. So that was kind of how, you know, the grudges kept on even to the end. Mm. Uh, and, and the taker was in place and Sven was in place. And then, of course, uh, after all this uncertainty, and Stefan said the money was there for players and that was the part of the pledge. And re- to reveal a little secret here, which I've kind of kept for quite a while, I had a very good contact in Jerome Anderson's camp, who was obviously working for well, Sven Shinawatra at the time. Um, and he was involved. Uh, he, he was basically given a, a, the task of go out and get me a load of players. And um, it was incredible because I think we, we bought in seven or eight players. Um, I think they cost us about 45 million in total. But, and this kind of sowed the seeds for what came later. It was a case of, I think we put 15 million down, and then uh, we paid the, the other 30 million off over the next two seasons. So, so by, we say, um, the takeover was completed on first week in July and by the end of July these players started coming in which was an incredible achievement uh, and, and, and Jerome Anderson just had to go out and get the players that Sven wanted and Sven had said to, said to him get me X, Y and Z, not not get me names but I want a left back, I want this I want that, of course we ended up with um, Ilano and Giovanni Martin Petrov uh, Javier Garrido um, and I forget the names Bojinov. Oh, oh Bojinov yeah 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 uh, great shame we never saw him. So all of a sudden, from nowhere, we've got a new owner. We've got Sven as manager, and we've got these. Uh, um, no, we hadn't. I don't think many people had heard of most of these players. But there was including Sven, by what, the way. Sorry, including Sven. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. These were not well, players. yes, yes, yes. These were he, a he collection had, of players. It really was a DVD. It, it was get what you can get. Yeah. As opposed to Sven, you know, have you been watching Rolando Bianco from Regina? 
or uh, you know, he might have known Bojanov. I don't know. You know, he's a bit more famous. But but this was a that's right. Bianchi was, came in that summer as well, didn't? Yeah, he? it was a supermarket sweep yeah. of, of transfers. Yeah, um, but needs needs must. I mean, you know, we know what the squad was like at the end of that season. Yeah, yeah. So I think we were, though we hadn't heard of most of these players. It was just incredible to be spending the incredible sum of forty-five million on on a group of players, and it was kind of something we'd never seen before as a club. Almost, you know, we've been the ones getting the money for sure, right, Phillips, as we talked about. But you know, forty-five million, and we've got a whole group of players, and. Um, there was a whole great, um, whole great buzz about. I have to say, there was a whole great buzz, despite there were a lot of misgivings about um, vaccine, of course, and some fans took it really badly. Um, and, uh, anyone who knows Rascal uh, Russ from from the old Blue Moon, uh, he gave up his season ticket. He was so principled, uh, took a stand that he wasn't going to watch City while while Thaxon was the owner. Uh, and I know a, a few other people took that. Um, took that stance um, so it was an interesting situation from being just Manchester City and everyone's favourite second club and the comedy club all of a sudden now we're, we're kind of a high profile club and we've got say human rights watch all over us and Colin, did you ma- feel like that? Uh, sorry? Did you feel like that? Did when I was I was uneasy uh, it wasn't the easiest situation as a fan to be in uh, particularly if you're a thinking fan and, and you know you're, you're interested in politics but I, uh, and it was a test. I must admit, it was a test. But my my, my view was whole, always been that we are the club, the fans of the club, and whoever owns it, the players, the manager, the the directors, it's still our club. It's not our club financially, but it's our club emotionally. Mm. I, I, and and I had a lot of conversations with myself at that time about what lengths would I, what line would I not cross. If X, Y, or Z was the owner, for example, but I, you know, Texan was an owner I was prepared to tolerate. And actually, what helped me was I was um, at this point I'd moved down to work in London, and uh, I was driving into I was living in Southwest London, and I was driving into Kingston on Thames to go to the gym, I think. And uh, there was an interview with uh, Texan Shinawatra on Radio Five Live, and it was a really good interview. Uh, and it really put my mind at rest. And I, it, whether he'd probably been briefed to give the answers and whatever, but he really came over very, very well. And he came over very sincere, full of ideas for the club. And I'm thinking, well, maybe this isn't too bad. Maybe I can put any um, kind of any doubts I've got about his background and what he's doing here. Because, as I say, we've been catapulted into the public glare. Mm. Uh, because I think we all recognised that it wasn't about, you know, he hadn't grown up with pictures of Colin Bell on his wall, bedroom wall, but it was all about Thai politics. And it was all about him um, keeping his face in the in the face and name in the news. And what better way to do that than owning a Premier League club, which obviously has a huge following in, in Thailand. So I think I think most, most of the more intelligent people recognise that this was the situation. But having heard this interview, it was a very measured really good interview i'm thinking well actually I'll, I'll put all that aside because he might be better for the club than what's gone before in fact, yeah you can't couldn't imagine being much worse to be honest but it was a really calming interview and i i kind of got behind him quite a bit and of course he was quite an engaging character you can't you certainly can't take that that away from him he came over really really well so yeah i was a bit was great to play golf with as well great to play golf we'll come to that later as well <laughs> um 
yeah, but so yeah, it was. Um, I'm I'm quite excited. I'm quite excited about the season now. I think we've got an owner who seems to know what he's talking about, um, and away we go. So um, so let's talk oh, about we- that first the the first half of the season because I think it's fair to say that that season can comfortably be split into. Yeah, two halves, really. What yeah, happened after the first two halves? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I was down in living down in London, so the first game was away at West Ham. And it was um, a burning hot day. I remember it, one of the hottest days I've ever attended a football match. And living in London, of course, it was no hassle to get there. My son came down from Manchester, and we went. We got the train into London and the, the tube out to West Ham. And um, on the way, um, I'd, I'd done something for Match of the Day two the season before, and they'd rung me during the week. Said, "Can we do an interview with you? We'd like to do a follow up um, to see how you feel about the takeover and looking forward to the match. And we'll do it outside Upton Park. And we'll do a we'll interview you before when you're going in. And we'll, when you come out, we'll pick you up again." And we'll we'll get your views on the game. That's fine. So I was stood outside Upton Park, and I was talking to uh, Dave Wallace. I think um, there was a group of us round, and then uh, they, well, while I'm waiting for the call from the match of the day crew, who are cutting it a bit fine, um, someone tapped me on the shoulder, and I can't remember exactly who it was. I, I think it was a guy called Phil Shakespeare. I said, "Oh," he said, "Your name's just come up in conversation." So how come? He said, well, just been standing at the entrance and a big roller came up with uh, some Thai guys in it. And, and we, we started, he said, they, they chatted to us and he said, someone asked, someone was asking, does anyone know Colin Savage? Because we'd like to meet him. So I'm thinking, oh, th- this meeting never happened, of course. But uh, I'm thinking, well, you know, this is even better. You know, they want to talk to him. They want to talk to the fans and c- couldn't be better. Anyway, um, match of the day. Well, it gets quite fun. The match of the day two crew phoned me, said, oh, we're not going to make it in time. You go in and we'll do um, both sides of the interview when you come out. So we went went to the game and no one knew what to expect, of course, because we had seven new players. I think there were five of them in the starting lineup or something like that. Um, West Ham weren't a bad team. And um, of course, we won 2-0. And it was just you know phenomenal atmosphere inside the ground. Um for, for the second goal, which uh, Giovanni, I think, scored, uh, Neda Manua d- d- went on went on a messy like run down the um, down the city right. He was I remember that. Fullback, took on about three West Ham players, uh, left them completely bamboozled, and put the ball into Giovanni's path. This sort of and this was kind of the last couple of minutes, I think. So this this kind of rounded it off. So it it was you know we've got a new club, we've got a new owner load of new players. We've won at West Ham when the, the best we could have hoped for for a draw. So you um, can imagine the atmosphere among the fans was fantastic. I went out and the, the match of the day, two crew were waiting outside. And Kevin Day, the comedian, used to do the, the feature. So we, we'd met before. So um, we went off and he said, now you've got to pretend you've not seen the game and you, you're just about to go in. So we're going to ask you a series of questions and pretend you don't know what's happened. So they start interviewing, saying, you know, how, what, what are your feelings about the takeover? Well, you know, go through this. How do you think the match is going to go? I said, well, you know, we've got new, lots of new players. It's going to be difficult for them to gel. Uh, it might take a few games. I'd, I'd be delighted with to come away from here with a point. And they stopped filming. Then they kind of turned me around so we got a different backdrop, moved my sunglasses to wh- wherever they were, and said, 
Right, no, no. Now you've been to the game, you, you thought it was going to be a draw before, are you happy with the draw? Are you happy with the result? And this is that two minutes later. So you've got to put on this you've got to put on this happy face and um say, Oh, absolutely fantastic. Never expected anything like that. When two minutes later I've been telling them I expected a no more draw. <laughs> but the it proves to me television. I, Yeah, the magic of television. And you want to but what spoilt it was all the city fans were coming out shouting, you know, on the top, shouting at the top of the voices. But anyway, that, that was the West Ham game. So, you know, brilliant start. Uh, and then we, I think we won the first two at home. And yeah, I, remember, um, I just wanted to, to say, cause I, I, I get the opportunity to talk a little bit about Michael Johnson. And that's, that's the only thing that I really want to talk about in this podcast. Um, for those who don't know or don't remember, Michael Johnson was a, an Academy product, uh, who, um, that season was the most exciting player I'd ever seen come through our academy. Um, and he scored the winner. If I remember correctly, the first home game was Derby. Derby, yeah. And if you've not seen his winner against Derby, it's on YouTube. Google it and find Michael Johnson's winning goal against... He scored, he scored the winner against Villa as well in the next home game. Uh, no, after the Derby. Yes, he did. That's right. Because we played. He was on fire that 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 first few weeks of that season, in particular. He was he was absolutely on fire. Um, but so were we. I mean, if you look at what actually happens, we won. I think nine out of the first thirteen, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, we we. I remember feeling pretty chuffed about the whole deal at that point. I don't know if you guys remember. Maybe I'm jumping forward a little bit too much, but I remember that. In the middle of that purple patch, there was a big warning sign. We played Chelsea, and they put six past us. I don't know if you. Re- <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but I think it six was now. Ha- yeah, Javier Garrido had the worst game I've ever seen a left back have for Man City. Now that is saying something because I've seen some appalling <laughs> left backs, but Garrido's performance against Chelsea on that particular day was was yeah, wow, set up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Colin, so sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, just to, just to step back. Obviously, we that that um, the third game in we were playing a derby, derby at home, and um, of course we won. I, I don't wouldn't say we really deserved to win, but Giovanni had that long range strike, and what more do you want? You know, new owner, new players, Brazilian scoring, team the world. playing well, Brazilian scoring a world class goal against our you know bitter rivals. It was just wonderful, and and the atmosphere was great. And um, the, the, the next game was um, back in London at the Emirates. And this is where things start, start to get a little bit strange. I mean, not in terms of the... We lost the game 1-0. But bizarrely, the four of us who had started the Supporters Trust, uh, one lived abroad and the th- three of us lived in the, the UK, two in Manchester, one in London. We were all quite by chance sat together at the Emirates. And um, David Bernstein was also there, but he was in the posh seats, of course, in the level two at the Emirates. And um, he passed a message to one of the guys that um, basically City were borrowing. We all assumed that the taxing was going to pay off all the debts, but rather naively, we assumed the taxing was going to pay off all the debts and pump money into the club. And the story came back from from um, Bernie that um, actually he, the club was borrowing more money. So instead of paying off the debts, they were actually going further into debt. Now, in hindsight, this was obviously uh, taxing, lending money to the club to cover um, working capital, okay. I, I, I think. Um, but at the time, it sounded quite ominous. Sorry, just to, just to stop you there. Um, 
Stefan, how does this marry with what you told me at the beginning about the fact that they that Thaksin had shown funds? Did they put funds into a bank account ostensibly that were transfer funds for the upcoming season? Um, and now Colin's saying that by mid-October, they're talking about taking out loans to buy players. Does that imply... This was the end of August. This was the end of August. Oh, so, okay, yeah, I think there's a yeah. few different aspects to it. So, the, first of all, one of the things that I said, so I had an interview with uh, David Conn just after we announced the deal. Um, and w- one of the things that you have to be honest about when you do any sort of takeover is you can put in place the protections. You can try and put in place protections but ultimately, once the asset is owned by the new owner, they do what they like. And there's no real way around that. And so we were always vulnerable to that happening. But I think a few things came together. One, we actually spent quite a lot of money headline in terms of the players. So we bought, you know, how many was it? Eight players, maybe. Total spend, uh, 40, 50 million quid. Divided by four in terms of payment plans. It needed maybe 10, 12, 14 million quid. If you throw in Jerome Anderson's fees, uh, throw in ta- um, the fees that were probably taken on signing for, for, for Sven. And pretty quickly, you could have burnt 20 million quid. You know, probably uh, Seymour Pierce took a fee. So pretty quickly, you'd, you'd burnt 20 million quid, yeah, which yeah. was probably most of the money that had been put into Seymour Pierce's bank account anyway. Then laid on top of that, it's actually quite normal for somebody such as a new owner to put money in as a loan. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it's sort of particularly meaningful. It sits behind the, the, the debt that was already there. It almost made no sense whatsoever to pay off the debt. So I'm not surprised that he didn't do that because the 60 million quid of debt is long-term debt. It was on a low interest rate. It would have been more trouble to unwind it and there would have been more redemption fees and all sorts of things around it. So that in itself wasn't a problem. And I think at that point, he was probably just lending the company money because it's better than just putting in what's known as an equity investment, which is effectively you just give the the club the money. So I don't think there was too much to read into it, but maybe against the expectation of here comes a billionaire who's just going to fund the company like Abramovich. And you remember, people kind of looked at everything through that prism right at that point, three years before. Abramovich had come in, Pini Zahavi, whatever he was called, had, had led, had done the Jerome Anderson type style thing, spent an absolute fortune, bought everything that moved, you know, probably hundreds of millions of pounds, written off a whole load of that investment. And people just kind of expected, well, it's just going to be like that, isn't it? Because this guy was, a, you know, because taxing had serious money. So it's probably more versus the expectation of how easy it was going to be rather than anything particularly worrying by that point i i went to a few games uh and had a number of conversations i obviously wasn't involved on a day-to-day basis following the transaction but i was getting you know reasonable feedback as to how it was going uh from mcintosh and just generally and i think you know people were generally relatively comfortable with with how it was playing out i mean particularly on the pitch you know these things are generally led by how things are going on the pitch and it was going okay. So I certainly by that point, I, I wasn't hearing too many uh, big warning signs, but you know, Colin was probably closer to uh, the more negative voices and Bernstein's always been a negative voice in relation to that. So, uh, and he would have been getting his own information out of the club. So 
but you know, it's possible, but I'm not, I wasn't overly concerned at that point. Okay. Okay. So it didn't feel at that point, like already, Oh, we've done a bad deal here. No, it was, well, it was the opposite because ultimately the barometer was on the pitch and yeah. we won nine out of 13 or whatever it was. So well, if I remember, uh, Colin, if I remember correctly, um, we were actually fourth, um, going into the Christmas fixtures. Uh, just after we check, yeah, New Year's Day or second of January, we played Newcastle at um, St James's Park, and I think we went fourth. We won that one too. No, we went fourth. There you go. I think. So, so, so yeah, on the pitch, there's absolutely nothing to complain about. Mm. But let's talk about because I remember very vividly that it was around Christmas or the turn of the year that the noises began to emanate from somewhere, and you know the way the world of football works, that Sven was either on his way out or that Daxin wasn't happy with something or that they'd had a falling out over transfers that Sven yeah. wanted in the January. Um, I can tell you that story. <laughs> yeah, if you want me. Yep. Please um, as you say, um, the first half of the season was brilliant. Nothing... There were some rumbles off the pitch that um, I was hearing from Jerome Anderson that he w- he wasn't keen on McIntosh and he didn't think McIntosh was the right man and he was advising Sven to get rid of him. There were stories that um, the Thai directors on the board or the, or the people around Shinawatra were going above uh, going over McIntosh's head to talk to people at the senior pe- other senior people at the club and Alistair McIntosh wasn't happy. These are the slight rumblings we're getting, but. I think the real flashpoint then comes uh, as we get towards Christmas. And and the story I heard, and I think it was, if I remember rightly, Bernard Halford told this story um, a few years afterwards. Um, when I was down in London again, living down in London, and uh, so, some people got invited to the team hotel the night before we played at Arsenal, which was uh, just after the New Year, it was a midweek game. Uh, and Bernard did a Q&A, and he talked about this, if I remember rightly. And... Um, it kind of goes back to, if you think back, Sven wanted a big-name manager. The club wanted some, perhaps someone a little bit more pragmatic. Uh, uh, sorry, Thaxing wanted a, a big-name manager. And um, so they have this traditional meeting that, that all clubs have when they meet to decide what their transfer targets are coming up to the, the January window. Because, of course, we'd gone in very quickly and Sven saw some areas in the side that he wanted to improve. Uh and they'd had this meeting with them, sat around the boardroom table or whatever. And um, Taxon, he wanted a big name star. He, he wasn't, you know, it's like the Richard Dunn name doesn't roll off the tongue in Beijing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Taxon wanted a big name to, to, to kind of to push the club even further. And I think Joe was that, believe it or not, um, Joe was that name. So, so Thaxon said, I want to buy Joe. And Sven said, no, 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 he's not the player we need. Not Joe Hart. You're talking about the Brazilian Joe. No, Joe, Joe, Brazilian Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, he was quite a, you know, quite a big name. Uh, and Brazilians always, Elano had gone down really well. Scored, you know, those two wonderful free kicks against Newcastle and Middlesbrough. Um, and there was a big argument about this. Sven wanted to pluck, Sven, Sven was looking at it from a football point of view. Uh, and Taxon was looking at it from a, a kind of PR point of view. He wanted a big name and uh, Sven wanted some more prosaic or pragmatic signings. Ended up in a big argument. I'm told that um, it got so heated that Taxon threw a vase or something at Sven. Fortunately, me. 
and I think this is where the problems with Sven started. Um, and in the end, we got Benjani. Um, and, and it's a funny story because um, obviously we all we've all heard the story that Benjani missing flights and whatever. Uh, it, or put about that he fell asleep at the airport. But um, Jack Pitbrook of the Independent, is a big city fan, Jack. I know Jack. Uh, told the told the truth story. Benjani didn't want to come. And this was the story. He wasn't keen on going from Portsmouth to City, which was seen as a bit of a downgrade, perhaps, at that time. Portsmouth were doing quite well. Um, Benjani didn't want to come. City, in the meantime, are, are putting all the paperwork together. Uh, and Benjani only arrived at the last minute, it, at which point most of the paperwork has gone through. Because they have to get the paperwork into the GFA. Mm. Most of the paperwork's gone through, apart from anything Benjani had to sign. He wasn't keen, and City then decided they wanted to pull out the deal. Oh, so wow. they finally got they finally got Benjani up to Manchester. Don't like his attitude, and decided they wanted. And the FA said, "Sorry, no. All the papers have gone through. You can't pull out now." <laughs> so we tried to return Benjani. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the story that Jack Pitbrook told. Um, so it's even more bizarre, even more bizarre than the story. Uh, the story that was told at the time about him falling asleep at the airport and missing three three planes from Southampton. So, yeah, we tried to send him back and we couldn't. So we were stuck with him. And of course, he played his part a bit later on. Um, so, but that, that I think, sowed the seeds of the discord between uh, Sven and uh, Taxi. And I think the players started to feel that. This, uh, I think from what, everything I've read about Sven is a fairly open guy so he probably would have gone to the players and told them about the problems he was having with 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 taxing or they would have realized and that that's when the results started turning um against us yeah now in terms of that uh the second half of that season and and the results turning my i guess that my overriding memory of that is very much that it felt like for the entire second half of the season, the narrative was very much that Daxin wants rid of Sven. Um, there was also a feeling amongst corners of the support that Sven had not so much down tools as just sort of let the players get away with an awful lot in the second half of the season because he wasn't that bothered either. Um, do you think that's a fair accusation, or do you think it it just was that he was in an untenable position where he knew he was going in the summer, and it just made the, the entire situ- circus, in a way, very complicated? I, th- I think it was a bit of everything. I, thought, I think there would have been that. I think Sven realised he didn't have a future. He didn't want to work under uh, Tax and Shinawatra because he wasn't going to get um, he wasn't going to be allowed to manage. It was always going to be, if Taxi wanted to buy someone, they would go out and buy someone and whatever. So um, I think there was part of that. I think that feeling gets through to the players, mm-hmm. certainly, because they, I think Sven is a fairly open guy and, and the players would have realised. There was this story about late in the season about a letter being pinned up in the dressing room, which from three separate sources I had confirmed, so I had no reason to doubt this. Uh, what was the letter? Uh, Something to something. I'm trying to find it. Um, it was something along the lines of, "I'm not happy with your attitude, and if you don't book up, you will all be sold." Something like that. And that was a, oh, that's right. That was a letter from Daxin, wasn't it? 
Yes, yes, yes. That's, That's right. Right. Yes, I remember that at the time as well. Uh, Rumours of that during the rounds. So was that so actually really, true? I, I'm told it was. Yeah, I had confirmation from three separate sources, and if I, if I get that, then I believe it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, I think I even. I'm just trying to stretch my memory. I'm, I think I even saw a copy of that letter. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, it was true as far as I know. Yeah. Okay. Um, and of course, there's this. As you say, it was a season of two halves up to Christmas, January. We're doing really well, top four. And then it just all, and the, the arguments start and everything starts to go downhill. But of course, we won, it, uh, we won the derby. Yes. Um, the double. But even that was an interesting, that was an interesting one because we had the, the problems with the, um, the club were seriously worried about City fans disrupting the minute silence. Let's, t- let's, just, let's just give a little bit of context, context maybe yep. for listeners who don't know. That was the... It was the what anniversary? 50th, it was the fiftieth anniversary of the Munich air disaster. It was the fiftieth anniversary of the Munich air disaster, and they decided to commemorate it, or they were commemorating it uh, around the derby at Old Trafford. So yeah. go for it, Colin. That was the nearest game for it. Why anyone thought a Manchester derby was a good idea? Perhaps, perhaps there was a naive view because uh, obviously it was a Manchester thing. Obviously, Frank Swift had been on the plane. Anyway, that, it was what it was, and there was a lot of concern at the club, and there was a particularly nasty story, again, from Daniel Taylor, um, and he and I had a feud out over this for many years till I found out the truth. Um, we played West Ham in the Cup uh, down at Upton Park again, and um, just after that, there's a story that had appeared in The Guardian that City fans had been singing um, very disrespectful songs at the West Ham game. Now, a few of us who were there had not heard the definitely not heard these songs. So we challenged the Guardian over this, and they said, uh, "Oh, uh, he heard it at the game." We said, "We were there at the game. I can assure you, it wasn't sung, unless it was some, somewhere." And then the story changed a couple of times. Oh, well, he heard it in a pub. Which pub? Uh, well, it wasn't in a pub. It was someone else who heard it who told him about it. Blah 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 blah. So it left a bit of a, a sour taste in the mouth. Um, that, that kind of the press were uh, assuming that City fans would disrupt it. And, of course, it went off very well. Uh, impeccable was the word used, uh, the way the silence was observed. And perhaps the whole emotional thing worked in our favour because United never really raised themselves. And, of course, um, Darius Vassell and then Benjani off his shoulder. On his uh, debut. On his debut, yeah. Benjani yep. on his debut scores the winner in a derby. Go on, lad. Yes. So um, it all ended up fine. And it was only year, just to, to take it out of the context of, of, of uh, factories ownership, it was only years, uh, years later when I met um, Daniel Taylor and I were doing something together for Radio 5 Live that he told me the story that the club had asked him to print that story. What? Because they were saying, yes, they were, it was typical Paul Tyrrell type. Of, we won't go into that now, but um, typical Paul Tyrrell type approach, um, sledgehammer to crack a nut. The club was so worried about the what would happen that they were putting out these stories, asking reporters, journalists, to print these stories. And it was a t- totally false story. But uh, Dan- Daniel Taylor admitted that Paul Tyrrell asked him to print it. Allegedly. We should say allegedly because... Well, D- Daniel Taylor told me, uh, talked to my, we were sat there talking to each other afterwards and... He told me that story. Allegedly, yes. Mm. I think he was. I, I think he was naive in what he, in the way he did it. I could understand the club's concern to some degree, but but uh, you know, it, it, it all left a very unpleasant taste in the mouth. Which fortunately, nothing happened at the derby. We won it. Our first double over United for God knows how many years, and 
you know, it was kind of the, almost the one bright spot in that um, in that season, in that second half of the season, because so, we weren't winning games. Yeah, so that second half of the season, we, we can kind of brush over the football because it did become yeah. very anodyne very, very quickly. And um, we won four games in, in the last 17 games. So after that game that you referred to before, the Newcastle away win, yeah, we won four, four out of 17. And it culminated in what is... I would say one of the worst days in certainly in 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 terms of of my sort of adult life as a city supporter, and that's uh, going to Middlesbrough and losing eight one with a team who clearly chose to to down tools on the day. Absolutely, yeah. Now, yeah. Colin, I've got a question here because if my memory serves me right, Shinawatra is skipping bail around this time. Um, I don't think it was around this time. I think it came a bit later on, which we'll come on to. Okay. But it was, you know, the, the scene was set. He was facing criminal prosecution in Thailand. Yeah. Uh, it was almost certain he wasn't, and you know, it, it almost made it clear Sven was going. Mm. Sven, I would imagine, was very popular with the players. So as you say, I think they downed tools in that middle. Richard Dunn got himself sent off in about fifteen minutes in, and. Indeed. That would just set the scene for the rest of the game. So, yeah, it was very embarrassing. But the, the bizarre thing was, obviously, that was the end of the season. Uh, uh, and Sven, we, we, we know he's going to be sat. We had the, the lovely little Save Our Sven campaign where we had a little rally at the ground and marched and had it in a position, which was quite a good, nice, fun way to spend a couple of hours. Uh, but they made Sven go on the tour of Thailand. I remember that too. And apparently, I was told, just told this story before, um, Sven was in a karaoke bar. Um, i just got to check. Just, excuse me while I just check this story. It was, um, and, and Thaxon was on the karaoke singing something. Um, should he stay or should he go? Should he stay? You're that was it. You're going to get should he go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was a very bizarre situation all around. But, I mean, it was so so. But I mean, who knew what was to to come? It was it just got even more bizarre. So Shane obviously left us, and um, we're managerless. Um, Gary Cook came in around this time, didn't he? Gary Cook, yeah. Gary Cook was. Uh, I say, uh, Texan's been trying to get rid of Alistair McIntosh almost since the beginning. Um, I say, Jerome Anderson and McIntosh just hadn't hit it off at all. Uh, I don't think either held the other in too high regard, and there was a bit of a battle, media battle between them. And uh, but of course, given Thaksin's background, um, Ivan Gazidis, who's now at Arsenal, big City fan, was approached to take the job and um, said thanks, but no thanks. And this was the problem we had in getting someone with with Thaksin's increasing problems back in Thailand, and of course the, his whole background. Um, and, and no one wanted to. It was it was you know quite a toxic job. So um, I mean, you've got to credit to Alistair McIntosh for uh, sticking in there, really. Um, um, but and I think he he knew at some point he would he would be out and was making overtures to various clubs, particularly Liverpool, who were looking for a new chief exec. But again, I think Jerome Anderson put the boot in on that one. Um, well, I think he so, was he was being undermined from multiple different. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, he I, had there was this lady called uh, Assassin Monvoison. Yeah, who was one of uh, one of his one of. Um, one of Taxin's uh, friends or colleagues or relatives or yeah. something, and then there's this other guy called uh, Jack, 
Sri Samid, yeah, who I think is a very credible character actually, and hung around actually in the in the new regime. But but and then and then you had uh, Jerome Anderson as well. So you so you've got a chief executive who's being undermined not only by the chairman but by an agent who's effectively running the club and two henchmen. Uh, so I, I, it wasn't it wasn't a particularly great position for Alistair to be in. It wasn't, no. I don't think it was. Even I felt a little bit sorry for him in that position. And that's saying something. But yeah, it was a difficult one. So um, Gary Cook, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, was um, appointed. I, I seem to remember he was appointed. He, he was appointed before the end of the season. So he could have he been. He was in May. He was in the May. Yeah, he, he didn't. He was appointed before the Middlesbrough game, but decided not to go. But he hung back because of McIntosh's position. Anyway, um, I remember Gary Cook then came in at the end of the season, I think. And it was quite end of May, May's time. I think it was officially appointed. And um, obviously, we had no manager. Uh, we had two chief executives. Um, and obviously, something was going to happen. And as it happens, um, I happened to be working in Mayfair, at that just beginning of June, first week in June. I was working for the uh, wealth management arm, one of the big uh, banks, and the headquarters in Mayfair. It was again, it was a really hot day, and I was a bit stuffy, and I had a bit of a headache, and I thought I'm going to go out for just to have a little walk around, which I didn't normally do. So I had a good stroll around uh, Mayfair Shepherd's Market, and as I come round a corner, there's a group of six guys coming towards me, all suited and booted, and the the one I recognised straight away was Mark Hughes. And I look look a bit, little bit closer, and um, I recognise Gary Cook, and um, Keir Jurabchin was was also in that group. I didn't recognise the other three. None of them were Macintosh, um, so it's quite obvious that um, Hughes was going to be the new manager, which I thought was quite good. Um, so that was quite just, a just, quite just a on that. You know, when we were talking about the managers before, so yeah. one of the bidders. Well, I say bidders. If you remember last time, I said that there was an American guy. Um, sort of of the three bidders, there was Ranson, this yeah. American guy. So I remember the, the American guy had really wanted Mark Hughes as the manager the previous season. So had he got, had he managed to do the deal, Hughes was the number one choice. And I think actually from memory, McIntosh, when we were talking about it, I remember being in a sports bar in, uh, in Manchester and uh, we were talking about potential managers uh, and Hughes was the one that was, um, was the kind of focus the year before. So it wasn't a surprise that then Hughes, and he'd done a very good job at, at Blackburn. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't a surprise that he was, he was right up there as being the target. Yeah. So, so this is quite a kind of chance encounter with this group, but they've been at the, uh, one of the hotels in Mayfair uh, and just concluded the negotiations and were just coming out for some fresh air as I was. So, um, I managed to get a kind of a scoop on the new city manager, although it was it was well well trailed in the press anyway. Well telegraphed at that point. Yeah. Well, this so so we've got a new manager. Um, I think Alistair McIntosh and Paul Tyrrell left around soon after that, if not soon after that. He goes in June, yeah, early June. Yeah, yeah, early June, and about the, the following week, I, again, I'm sat at my desk in Mayfair, and and my phone rings, and. Um, it's one of the guys from the supporters trust. We, we kept in touch um, throughout the throughout the season, and um, one of the guys said, "You better sit down. You're not going to believe this." He said, um, "The accountants are in at City. Uh, they're about to go into administration. Just had word from David Bernstein, um, and I managed to check up 
uh, fortunately had a, a friend of mine who was a United supporter actually knew the guy who was leading the team. The, uh, it was a team from Ernst & Young. And what had happened was, if we go back to the kind of previous summer, we'd bought all these players on installments. I think we paid about 15 million, about 45 million all in. We put 15 million down. We had to find the second 15 million and we didn't have it. So uh, obviously one of the big options on the table was to go into administration because we couldn't pay this 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 debt. And uh, say Gary Cooks, ju- a couple of weeks into the job as CEO, he was his manager, and all of a sudden we've got a complete existential crisis. And this was kind of one of the most um, chilling phone calls I'd ever had because I, I remember just sitting there, it was a hot, another hot day, which just went cold thinking, this can't be happening. You know, it's just weird. And, and then we have this te- teleconference between a few of us. Apparently, um, uh, Richard Scudamore at the, F- at the Premier League was desperate, to, knew about this, was desperate to avoid kind of some bad PR by a, a club going into administration, particularly given the, the background the year before. He was desperately uh, kind of running around trying to get a rescue package together. Uh, David, it obviously approached David Bernstein. Bernstein was keen to do it, but um, the discussion, and it, it was the most kind of, I say, chilling discussion I'd ever had, I think, around City. Um, and the question was, well, we could probably buy it for 20 million as a going concern, but if it's going to an, in a, into administration, we reckon we could pick it up for two to three million if it collapses. And and the question was, we'd, we'd obviously had a guy who was prepared to finance the purchase of Sky shares for a not dissimilar amount. And the question David Bernstein was asking was, would he buy the club You know, at that sort of price? And we had this completely depressing conversation about, did we let, do we let the club go into administration and buy it? Which Bernstein would have loved to have done. Uh, so buy what? it for two or, three, two or three million. Or do we kind of put a package, try and put a package together to pay, say, 20 million? Uh, and buy it as a as a going concern. And hope hope we can make a go of it. But mm. Without getting bogged most... down into the detail, um, who ends up paying that that debt that summer? Well, uh, in the end, this kind of rumbled on for a little while longer. So I think we we had about a month to to find the money uh, before the axe fell. And if you remember at the time, we're talking about 2008, summer 2008. So the credit crunch, a liquidity crisis had just started. So no one was lending money. And somehow we managed to get, I think, a 25 or 30 million loan from the South African bank, um, Standard Bank. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I'm not even 70% sure. But I think that loan was brokered by a big city fan uh, who's a financier. Um but I'm not 100% sure of my facts, so I don't want to kind of name him. But somehow against the odds, when no one was lending money and everyone was kind of drawing in the horns financially, we managed to get this huge 25 to 30 million loan. Again, secured on, I think, future season ticket income, um, which kept us going. So it enabled us to pay the money for the second installment on the players. But if you remember at the time, we're just coming up to the new season and uh, there was this incident of um, Stephen Ireland and Vedran Corluca going off to talk to various clubs. And I'm told at the time, um, Hughes basically said to Shinawatra, um, and this this was possibly one of the things that um, was the catalyst for him selling, 
it, if, if they get sold, Hughes wasn't involved in this. It just been done behind his back. Hughes was quite a principal character. Would said, "If this happens, I'm going. I'm walking." Um, that's which kind of right? Sorry, yep. Which kind of culture? Yeah, culture in a love. There was that moment, wasn't there, in the summer where Hughes was appointed, yeah. and then a week later or ten days later, Charlie Corluk is apparently going to Spurs, and Hughes has apparently resigned. That, that, like, I remember that absolute meltdown on yeah, Blue yeah. Moon because that that was a real thing that people genuinely thought was happening. So it's just absolute. You think, you know, how can it? It's, it's just incredible because you know, a, a couple of weeks later, we're on the verge of administration. We're trying to sell players behind the manager's back, and you think. You know, when, when we started all this back in um, July 2007, everything looked so rosy. You know, as I said, um, Taxon was talking very measured terms about what he was going to do for the club and uh, putting coming over very well. And we're in even bigger chaos than we've ever been in before. Um, even kind of perhaps in 1998, 1999, you know, there's a real, this is a real existential crisis because of it. And, and if it doesn't get resolved, God knows what's going to happen. And 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 the other thing in the head, well, in my head was, well, they borrowed all this money, twenty five million, whatever it was. We've have to pay fifteen million straight out. Um, the problem, I won't go into the detail. The way football club cash flow works, by the time you get to February March, you're running a bit short of cash, and you're usually dipping into your overdraft if you've got one. Mm. And thinking. We're going to, in nine months' time, we're going to be up the creek without a paddle. This, this will keep us going for a little while. Uh, but in, in six, nine months' time, we're going to be up the creek without a paddle. And, and it's going to be even worse. Of course, that, that situation didn't, didn't happen. But um, it, it was a real worry at the time. And, of course, we're going into the new season with all this. And then, of course, we go out and buy all, spend whatever money we have got on um, companies, Abeletta, Sean Wright Phillips came back. So let me ask you a question about those three purchases in particular, Vinny, um, Sean coming back and and Zabba. Um, After the takeover, because obviously we're now, what, two weeks from Sheikh Mansour buying the club. Um, After that takeover, there were a lot of stories, a lot of rumours that in fact it was Mansour who had that they were already well on the way to selling the club at that point. And those purchases were made with either with his money or knowing that his money was coming. Is that true? Or is that sort of a little bit more of a, yeah, I guess, fairy story? I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you in, in any honesty. Stefan? Uh, whether that was true or not. I don't think so, because I think it will happen very quickly at the end. Okay. I think... They they had they managed to have good contacts in in the Middle East. They managed to spin a story. They sent uh, Gary Cook over there uh, with a presentation, uh, and, and pretty quickly they did the deal. Um, and I, I think the the thing that indicates that that's not a true story is that profile of player. I don't think was the profile of player that we would have bought had they been in the in, in on the scene and in the background. You know, they those those players were very much Mark Hughes signings. Yeah, you know, a classic yeah. Mark Hughes. Good network, yeah. uh, highly rated, good fees. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not a Mark Hughes fan, but but they, they those were the hallmarks of 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 the better the better Mark Hughes that was out there. You know, yeah. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I don't think they were the sort of signings that those guys would have made. I can't recall where they got the money from. Did they actually do the Standard Bank deal? The Standard Bank deal was was a deal based on future, not not stadium revenues because that had already been mortgaged. 
it was uh, TV, future TV. TV, then. yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, TV. So, right. um, but I can't it remember where they actually consummated that deal and closed they did. it. Oh, yes, they did. They did. Right, so that's the, where um, the money came from. That's saw the right. document. Yeah, yeah, saw the document. We, we, we wouldn't have escaped without it. Okay, so as that's as he, he skipped bail at this point as well? Have we got that? Uh, yes, just about at this point, he's skipped bail as well, because uh, that was the Olympics. He was at the Beijing Olympics okay. and didn't go back to Thailand. Uh, Joe also finally came in. That That's summer, right. of course. And there was there was a lot of talk about Joe for what was it, nineteen million? But apparently, we only put four million down on Joe. But but basically, we, we've we've escaped. You know, we've got a get out of jail card with this loan, and then we've we've kind of blown any the rest of the money almost on um, um, these four players. And you, as I am thinking, what the hell is going to happen? Um, it's almost like the last chance saloon. And, and to talk about, just to, to go back to the Abu Dhabi takeover, I, d- I got this story from Gary Cook himself, actually, sort of to, to name drop, but um, I did have a session with him. Uh, I did have a, a chat with him. And, and apparently um, it, it helped that um, Abu Dhabi were looking for a club to buy. And again, it's probably for the same sort of reason, promotion, global promotion, uh, rather than, say, Sheikman saw growing up with Dennis Stewart pictures on his wall or whatever. And uh, so they were looking to buy a club uh, and they had a number of criteria. So it had to be basically what they called a sleeping giant, uh, a a club that perhaps wasn't as successful as it should be, but had a big fan base in a big city. And and there were four clubs on this shortlist. So obviously there was us, there was Everton, there was Arsenal, there was Newcastle. And um, Arsenal fell by the wayside quite quickly because obviously it was... Uh, the standoff between Kroenke and uh, Alisher Osmanov um, with, with the split shareholding, that was impossible to do. Um, they then put in a call to Mike Ashley and Mike Ashley sort of jokingly or, or sarcastically said, um, give me 500 million and I'll talk to you. you know, if we start the bidding at 500 million, I'll, I'll talk to you. So that was Newcastle out, out the way. So it was seriously us and Everton. And we, we got quite lucky because uh, obviously Stefan knows whenever you do a deal like this, there's all sorts of confidentiality, non-disclosure agreements, uh, pre-agreement agreements to sign. Mm. And Everton would not play ball. Everton had this weird idea of how they wanted to do business. And I, I, through a contact at Everton, um, I have actually seen the emails that passed between Everton, Amanda Staveley and um, the Abu Dhabi kind of people. Um, which which she's getting increasingly exasperated at Everton's attitude. She's like, you know, why won't they? Why won't they do this? What is the matter with them? Um, everyone signs these agreements. They won't play ball. They want to do it this way. We're not prepared to do. I've told them we're not prepared to do it that way. Uh, I'm, you know, and, and if they don't play ball, we should walk away. And and that's what happened. So it's just left with City on the table. But Gary Cook still had to do a fair old selling job. To, to bring the deal home. He did a good job, didn't he? I mean, obviously they bought the club, but the 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 Khaldun spoke very, very highly of of, of Gary Cook and, and the the vision that he sold to, to did hey, do you know, did Gary Cook actually have to present to Sheikh Mansour or was it just Khaldun and and kind of Mansour's representative? I don't even think it was Khaldun at that point. No, it wasn't really, Khaldun at that point. I don't yeah. think it was. I think it was very early on in in terms of that vision. Um, I, I'm I'm not completely convinced that it was Gary Cook who who led that transaction. There was a guy I mentioned last time whose name is so complicated. The, yeah, uh, the, the, the tie. 
Um, he, he was very much the driving force. He was the, he was the contact. But you can tell how much the deal was uh, not rushed, but was kind of cobbled together by the involvement of the um, of the individuals that were involved in that picture. The the fact they didn't even have when they held up the shirts, it was it was a shirt they bought from the local sports shop that wasn't the <laughs> shirt. You know, it was a deal cobbled together at the eleventh hour. It was not a it's not a well-planned transaction, you know, where they put these these great plans in place for how they were going to approach that window, and it came after a kind of organised process. It was, it was a, a somehow they managed to convince uh, people with really deep pockets to do a deal on the back of I think they just caught they pretty just caught Mansour's um, uh, representatives on a good day. Uh, and maybe saw himself. I don't know. Yeah, but I say it was the, the point I was trying to make was that um, you know it wasn't a case. The story was always put about that the taxing used his contacts to sell the club to Sheikh Mansour. But it, 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 he might well have had a part in that. But it was definitely a case of there was a beauty contest. You know, the, uh, Abu Dhabi was certainly looking to buy a club. Um, they weren't persuaded. Out of the goodness to do it out of the goodness of their hearts, they were looking to do this, and, and in a similar way that um, you know, uh, Taxon Shinawatra was looking to buy us the year before, yeah. looking to buy a club. Uh, Abu Dhabi were looking to buy a club. Yeah, but it is similar, right? So it was very similar. You know, yeah, but, but you know, Taxon looked at Liverpool eighteen months, two years before. So whilst they're looking for a club, there's no urgency to do the deal. Yeah. So the the, the skill of uh, of the people involved with Taxon. Um, uh, and his contacts in the area was to actually close the deal and consummate the deal before the deadline in in that August. Because, yes. you know, you miss windows. Deals often are opportunistic, especially in this sort of space. And if you miss the window, they don't always come back. And, uh, you know, I do think they deserve credit for actually doing the deal. Whether, whether Mansell was looking for a club or not, uh, he definitely wasn't about to buy City because we know from the preparation that was there, we know that that wasn't the case. So, uh, and Stavely, I'm sure, was looking to, to get a fee and do a deal because that's the way she operated. So, you know, I think a few things came together at the same time. But do you um, think yeah, there was yeah. a, do you, sorry, guys, do you think that, uh, Stefan, this is for you, um, the way that you've just sort of characterised that, it's, in a way, it's hard to marry that with everything that um, Abu Dhabi have done since they bought the club. So does that imply, in a way, that however they were convinced to buy the club and whatever that process was, when they purchased the club, there wasn't the vision that has subsequently been realised in terms of the promotion of Abu Dhabi and the way that the club itself has been built. And just because it, it feels now... Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a big difference between the situation that happened at that stage um, and... Um, and where they are today. Um, so, you know, I, I'd seen the way they operated at the Abu Dhabi guys. So when I finished that city deal, I went to run this um, little aim listed thing that was looking at leisure industry assets. And we were trying to buy a restaurant business called Hakkasan, which uh, people that are familiar with, with that restaurant know it's a high end restaurant. And we actually bid for it. We were pretty close to getting it. And we got our bid by this investment fund called Tassi, Tassasim 
property fund or something. And I was like, who the hell are these people? They're, they come from nowhere. They're outbidders. And it was actually Mansour's property fund. And this happened about, so this was basically in the weeks before they bought the city transaction. Mm. They'd just come along and blown everybody out of the water in terms of the bids. Blown out of the water to buy a trophy asset and then to go from there. I think we caught them at a very, very good time. And I think, you know, the involvement of people like that Solomon Al-Fahim guy, the, who was the equivalent of, uh, well, Trump or Sugar on The Apprentice in, in, um, in Abu Dhabi, you know, these were comedy characters around Mansour. I don't think Khaldun comes later. Khaldun comes into it about a month later. I don't think Khaldun was, was the guy that was going to head up the investment. I think it was slightly cobbled together. And I, and I, I, I think that they got their act together after doing the deal. And, and, and I think they've developed as an, as, a, as an investor who started just throwing money around and doing deals in quite an aggressive way mm. to what they are today. And, and so I don't think it was well planned, but I'm only really, I'm only looking from the outside. You know, I remember when they did the deal, I remember posting on blue moon, you know, just a direct experience to these guys. This is the real deal. You know, these are, these people have got serious deep pockets and are buying it as a trophy asset. And that is exactly what, what it turned out to be. Um, but you know, where you've got very deep pockets and you're buying something for, you know, 200 million quid, it's not the end of the world if it doesn't work. And I think they approached it in a, quite an aggressive manner, a kind of, right, it's opportunistic, it's there, we'll buy it, and then we'll, and then we'll see what happened. I think our, where we got lucky is that uh, I think Khaldun is a serious individual, uh, and he then you know, probably took, took control. Gary Cook had his strengths, and they had a, a bottomless pit of cash, which always helps. I think I'd, I'd add to that. And that that kind of makes sense, I think, because uh, uh, Suleiman Al Fayyan came over as a bit of a clown, and you think this this guy's how is this guy associated with this serious investment? Can you imagine just just can you imagine this group of individuals that own the club today buying I don't know let's say a club in wherever in the world right they buy a club in France tomorrow can you imagine them turning up with a kit they bought? in the local sports <laughs> shop that just happens to be the same color as the, as the club. I mean, you know, it's like uh, day and night in terms of the way they approach things. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. They'd have a three month lead in with a full social media campaign. They'd have, you know, the whole city would have outdoor advertising around the purchase. Do you know what I mean? It, it's just a completely yeah. different situation now. And I, I think, think we've seen that growth over time. Yeah. Mm. I think, yeah, I think why you're right. I, the serious point I make is um, people think that Khaldun is actually Sheikh Mansour's, I hesitate to use the word, lackey, but he's a serious player in Abu Dhabi. Uh, Sheikh Mohammed's, one of Sheikh Mohammed's right-hand men. And Khaldun getting involved is almost a statement that this is not a private investment, this is a an Abu Dhabi investment, because Khaldun would not be involved in something as trivial as a personal investment of Sheikh Mansour's. Which is how it was. I, I always make the point that he's not a member of the ruling uh, the Al Nahyan family, but um, he, in some ways, outranks Sheikh Mansour in the Abu Dhabi hierarchy. He's on the executive council. Wow. And Sheikh Mansour, and Sheikh Mansour isn't. It's so. It's, it's wild so, so what? What Stefan says is, I think it's quite. It's quite right. I think it probably started off as a, a perhaps characterise it as a bit of a lark is a bit, um, a bit much, but. It, 
you know, it was done. I, I think he's right. It wasn't done necessarily as a strategic investment. Once Caldoun got involved, and I think they realised the what could be achieved. That's when it became serious. Mm. Well, um, I guess I should say lucky for us that that it did become serious because I don't think that that Al Fahim clown. I don't think that way of doing business was was ever going to be sustainable. Um, and I mean, we've seen what a challenge it's been, even with Khaldun, uh, the obstacles that have been put up by UEFA and just the general uh, mistrust about um, about the Abu Dhabi ownership. So yeah, no, I think I think Khaldun was a was a necessary part of of the project. Just very briefly, just to wrap up, um, you you mentioned something both of you there that which I think is quite interesting. When we when we actually when Sheikh Mansour bought the club, uh, and even at the end of that first season, when Khaldun did his first season review, uh, he was at pains to characterise it as a personal investment of Sheikh Mansour's, as opposed to a an Abu Dhabi investment. Why do you think that was? Is it, do you think there's a there's a political reason or a personal reason, or did they just not want people to think that it was a bottomless pit of money? What would be the motivation there in in stressing that it was a personal investment, Colin? I reckon. I, reckon, I, go on. I think. Um, I think for the reasons you've said, it, uh, to, to not look like a, you know, you've got this picture of a football mad, uh, you know, a youngish football mad wealthy uh, individual buying a club um, and it maybe it's to for, for political reasons as you say maybe it's for political reasons it suits them to to, to paint it that way um, I, I, I know it's there is more to it than that I'd probably best not to say anything on, on air but um, there is more to it than that um, but it suit it suits Abu Dhabi but it has worked very well for them yeah, no. Uh, I mean, and if you look at you look at the way it's developed with clubs now in New York, Australia, Japan, um, and what we're doing, it is a big PR drive. I, I bet Etihad's revenues have gone up massively oh, since totally. they got involved with us. Totally. Um, um, so, so it is clearly a big. It, however, it may have started, and it may well have started as a personal investment. I don't know. Somehow, someone in Abu Dhabi saw the strategic importance of it. Uh, Stefan, what about for you? Um, what? Why do you think it went from a? Why do you well, think I'm a bit more cynical. I'm a bit more cynical. I, I th- to me, um, they are smart in this sort of in, in that in that sort of realm, and particularly Caldoun, in terms of the way that he articulates um, his messages at the end of the season, in particular, in each of those pieces, uh, they know how to hit the spots and. Absolutely. Yeah. I think they understand that, you know, look, it is very, very strange. The guy has been to one game, Mansour, right? Yeah. He's been to one match yeah. in how many years? A Nine lot. years. Right? Oh, so, years, yeah. uh, um, yet, yet, when you listen to uh, the level of detail that you get out of uh, Khaldun in terms of his uh, approach, his understanding just the little details of things that you know that the fans notice, and that he references within those um, within those discussions. I think they framed it for maximum um, resonance with the fans um, because I think they're smart like that. And I'm not saying it's fake. I just think they know what they're doing, 
and uh, to make it out to be a kind of national investment, both for the fans, but also probably for the football establishment, wouldn't be the right message. It's much better to be uh, a business investment of an individual with a with an end game that actually takes it from a club that he buys for 200 million quid to actually something that's worth probably over 2 billion today is actually, has actually turned out despite David Conn's constant reference to the billion pound of investment. I mean, he's up on his investment. I mean, this has been, I never thought on the day they did that deal or the weeks afterwards, I never thought that they could make it into something that actually made sense from a financial perspective, but that's been proved completely wrong. And that's, not just because of the deals done with Etihad and with, um, you know, actually some of those deals have been the worst deals we've done. I mean, that deal with Nike that was talked about, um, you know, it was a terrible deal uh, that Gary Cook did. Um, the deal with Etihad wasn't a good deal in terms of the headline numbers now when you frame it against, um, against other deals. And, um, and, you know, and what comes across there the fact that they've not just ripped up those deals and started again tells you that they actually were were not um, you know were not just completely made up deals between two uh, organisations held by Mansoor. So I th- I think they're all just I think they're pretty savvy. I think they're pretty smart, and I think they've done they've said what they needed to say, uh, but also on the other side, run it very professionally. Wonderful. I think that's the perfect note to wrap up this history podcast on. Um, Stefan, thank you very much as always. Cheers. Colin, thank you very much. A pleasure. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. Now, we're putting this show out on the 9320 player, but it's also, if you're listening on SoundCloud, this is exactly the type of show that you will get on the 9320 player uh, over the next season and even more seasons after that. So if you like it, come over to 9320.com and sign up. Uh, Yeah, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening, and we will be back very soon with another podcast. Cheers.